Hello, friends. Tired of traditional car dealerships pushing you around for five hours just to end up with a payment that's more than you can afford? They're not your friends, but you know who is your BFF? Volkswagen of Boise. They have a non-commission sales team that genuinely cares about your vehicle needs. Not ready to buy today? No pressure. Come back when you're ready, and they'll make the process easy and hassle-free with upfront pricing and a no-haggle philosophy. Volkswagen, engineered to buy easy. For more info, go to volkswagenofboise.com. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast, where we talk all things Treasure Valley. We're your hosts, Shane and Natalie Plummer. Welcome back to the conversation. Good morning. We'd like to welcome everybody back to the podcast. Uh, and welcome to our wonderful guest, Mark Iverson. How's it going this morning? Good. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, Mark has been has become a pretty good friend of us over the past year. We went on a history tour uh, with Ida History, uh, your company, this past summer, correct? Is that right? Yeah, this we summer. We took a bunch of friends, and it was the Macabre History Tour. Yeah, uh, it was the... It was my, I don't, I don't know, my uh, masterpiece, you know, <laughs> and uh, I, I put my all into it every time, you know, it's really hard in the summer. It, it was hot, but it was <laughs> yeah. so fun, but we walked all over Boise and we learned about, I, I didn't really know what to expect, but it was really fun because we, um, we headed down to see where there were some interesting murders and we went into where, um, you know, there were some possible hauntings, which remember how like you got lost and we were like. It was scary because we were like inside the building and then Shane was just gone and no one knew where Shane was. I don't even know where you went. Like, it's so funny. You said scary. And I thought this is like in the middle of the afternoon. How's anything scary during daylight hours? But I forgot about being inside that building. Yeah. Like, yeah. and yeah. if you watch any like creeper, like haunting stuff, it doesn't matter what time. Anyway, it was such <laughs> a fun tour and we learned uh, just, um, I loved how we learned about all these different aspects of like um, the brothels and the. Um, the important place of like prostitution in Boise's history, like just things like that that I, I hadn't thought about. Um, yeah, so such a fun tour. And we've had some awesome conversations with you, Mark, since then. Um, and most recently, just some, I think that our conversations have started with specific history, but they've kind of branched out into just history in general and getting to know you a little bit. You're a fascinating character, a lot more than I would have guessed from the first time that we met at the tour. Not to say that it wasn't awesome, but uh, I'm really impressed at some of your pedigree and kind of where you've come from. And so I know that we have like a, um, we've got kind of like a bio for you, but it's so long and there's so much stuff in it. And you, Natalie, you took some good notes. So, well, start I, it's funny because you know you meet you and you're like, oh, this is like a really cool guy that you want to go get drinks with and laugh and like have a good time. And then, and that's great. But then, like just this week, we ran into each other at a coffee house. And how long did we end up talking? About an hour and yeah, fifteen minutes. <laughs> it was or so long. Minutes. We were just sitting there, and uh, and then I called Shane afterwards. I'm like, okay, so like. Mark's really cool, but like he's also amazing and like knows so much about so much. And for Shane and I, like we really, we we love people who are curious in general, but also very open to finding out what they don't know. And that because that's you know that's I think what we're very much like is we realize we know some things and there's a lot of things we don't know. Um, so I, I just came away from that conversation, very inspired to learn some more things. And, and I'm like, Oh, I want to, I want to, cause we had had a different thought about what to talk on the podcast. I'm yeah. like, no, let's switch this around for some of your, your different strengths because you do have such an interesting, I, I mean, incredible background. So I'll try to summarize it really fast, which is almost impossible because wow, you've done a lot. So you were raised in Seattle yes, correct. and in the suburbs, in the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. Kirkland. All right. Mm, and then, yeah. but you were given the opportunity to kind of get outside of yourself and see, um, you know, you were a counselor. Yeah. So my mom, I think she was looking for sort of a pathway for me outside of fish and chips, you know, yeah. spuds, fish and chips. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that was good work. But she said, you know, how would you feel about being a counselor uh -huh. um, for, you know, special needs youth at this camp, you know, that the C city of Seattle put on. And so, uh, I, I did it and I was a head counselor and that means I just was like the handyman and I did everything I um, was told to do by the director and I just learned a lot about, you know, uh, people from uh, lower class backgrounds that couldn't afford other camps, mm -hmm. right? And so parents with special needs kids needed respite. Oh, and yeah. so we provided that respite on a very, you know, um, scanty budget, 
but we took all comers. There wasn't any, you know, um, any camper we wouldn't take on. And, uh, and it was a great learning experience. How old were you at the time? Uh, I was about 18. Okay. Yeah. 19. And is that what kind of inspired you to go into the Peace Corps? Um, at first I was totally overwhelmed and, uh, but it was working downtown, not just with people with special needs. It was people from all walks of life, all different backgrounds, you know, African-American, uh, Chinese Americans, you know, um, gay people, uh, straight people, you know, every different type of person you could imagine, but we Mm -hmm. all had these similarities and stories and I really got to love a lot of these people. And so, you know, it was, it, it, that was kind of the start of what led me to the Peace Corps. You know, this mom said again, why don't you join the Peace Corps when I, you know, was kind of looking for something to do after college and, Mm -hmm. you know, 2005. Mm. And then, and so you went to Bulgaria. I eventually, I was supposed to go to Kenya, um, Mm -hmm. but there was a coup. So that they don't usually send you to, you know, very dangerous yeah, places. Yeah, I don't want to travel during coup time. No, coup is... <laughs> That's like my least favorite time yeah. to travel, is coup time. <laughs> so they're like, how about you go to Bulgaria? I said, all right. So I went to Bulgaria in summer 2007 and met my wife almost immediately in, uh, in uh, oh shoot, where are you? Philadelphia, our staging area. And then we went to Bulgaria and we had a like very quick training. And then they're like, okay, now you're going to live in these towns with this family for three months. Mm-hmm. do training and then you go to your permanent site for but, two or but like what was your function or your purpose in the peace corps hey you all of you are going to go out there and we want you to do dot 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 yeah, yeah well it's all about sustainability so they teach you like it's not so much you have to do this this and this but it's grant writing you know working with kids uh you know teaching english uh, but i was a youth development not a not an english teacher you know so um there's also business development or community development. So they uh, have you do specific tasks. So really what happened with me is they said, okay, here's this school, uh, kind of like a prison for all, it was all Roma kids, right? And uh, so they were like, here you go, drop you off, uh, do something sustainable. <laughs> do something sustainable. What is Roma kids like for people who don't know what that uh, is? You know, the, I guess the... Uh, insulting nomenclature what you will for for roma is gypsy Mm -hmm. um it's widely used in america but you know it's insulting to them Mm -hmm. um and so anyway uh all these kids were there because their parents couldn't afford to send them anywhere so they intentionally got arrested or uh some of these kids their parents had died you know of of rough lifestyle you know they were addicted to drugs something like that um so something uh not too fun got them into their situation and so it was a school but it was kind of a it was a prison juvenile detention center too and so really there's nothing that can prepare you for that i was just told that this is our toughest assignment due to your work in seattle with at-risk youth i use quotations and then also a special needs community we think you can do this and so that's they just kind of I didn't feel very prepared for it. Not well. I mean, you were, we were talking a little bit about what you saw. I don't know if anyone could be prepared for you know what you witnessed. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about you know what what was happening there. Well, yeah. So I mean, you could tell that you know I've never I've read about racism and um, you know discrimination and uh, all sorts of you know oppression um, as I studied you know communism and all sorts of stuff in in my undergrad. But it's a different thing to see it that up front, right? So one thing I found was that the kids, um, the Roma kids themselves, were part of this system where uh, the darker the skin you had, the more um, abuse you took, right? Um, the less money you had or the, the dirtier, you didn't have cha- you know, changes of clothes because you couldn't buy them, right? Mm-hmm. So those kids were picked on more, beat more. And then I you know, experience racism myself because I was perfect. I had blonde hair, blue eyes. And so everybody that was Bulgarian, even the kids themselves said they called me angel or angle. And it was just really strange. But um, it was in a derogatory way. Uh, no, no it, I think, yeah, like it was you, they really felt like that, that you were better. Yeah, they did. And, and no matter how many times these kids would beat me in chess, these kids were amazing chess players. Um, they didn't believe it. You know, they didn't believe that they had actually beat me because of how I look, mm. wow. you know. Um, 
And so you realize that that people that are impacted by racism are also some of them believe it themselves. And so these these belief systems run deep, mm-hmm. you know, wire deep into the individuals. Oh, yeah, for sure. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How long were you there in that assignment? Two years. Wow. Yeah, it feels like a long time. Yeah, it was. And we, we joke in the Peace Corps that, you know, once that two years is up, you're finally a really good volunteer. Because you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't just go there and all of a sudden you're assimilated and you start, you know, you have to learn the language more. Uh-huh. You have to learn how to write small grants. But you're you're really you were talking about culture earlier. You have to learn the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can go to a place and be there and work but you're not as effective because you don't know how to say things. You don't know how to act uh, with the Bulgarian teachers. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they want you to sit and have their homemade, uh, you know, liquor Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, share a smoke, you know? And it's like, do I do this? Do I not do this? How do I, you know, how do I guide myself through this situation to have a favorable outcome for the kids? The cultural element of that is uh, it's distinct and, I think that all three of us have done a little bit of travel internationally. Mm-hmm. And so, but I just remember going down into Central America and there's a lot of that. You have to know their customs. You have to know uh, what they do, how they speak in order to really understand who they are because they mm-hmm. see themselves through the lens of their culture. I think that all of us do. Sure. Uh, that's how we self identify. So, spending time to understand them, I think, is the first step to empathy. Well, and that's how you gain trust too, you know, when they see that you empathize oh, yeah. with them and identify with them and appreciate aspects of their culture, you know? Mm-hmm. So like it might be, let's drink some liquor, but this guy worked really hard with picking plums or cherries and it's called Slivovitsi or Slivovitsa. And, uh, you know, they make it at home and some of the stuff's really good. Some of the stuff's really bad, <laughs> but you got to drink it all the same. But there's also this cultural thing that we joke about for, with new volunteers is that they will uh, fill your cup over and over and over again even if it's just a little bit empty Mm -hmm. they keep it full yeah yeah and so but then you're expected to drink it right (laughs) with them and so you just are obliterated (laughs) you know at at this place and you know i was doing it at this school with this gym teacher and then it's like okay now you got to go teach a weightlifting class (laughs) you know perfect uh, state of mind i'm ready yeah yeah, i've got this Uh as i stumble out of the room yeah, it's fine. I mean, usually there's not a lot of drugs involved in weightlifting and things like that, so it's fine. So yeah. <laughs> the next pertinent stop in your history after Bulgaria. It's uh, Boise State, right? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So tell us about, because you went a really interesting focused uh, graduate program at Boise State. First of all, how, how much time did you spend between your undergrad and going back to Boise um, State? I, so I went back in 2011. I got back in 2000, late 2009 from the Peace Corps. Um, so Michaela, my wife, she uh, she went to Boise State and got her master's in sh- social work. So I worked at Homestead Senior Care and, and looked after a gentleman in uh, in Sun Valley who had uh, Alzheimer's. And so that was a it was like a six day on five to six day on. Uh, you just live there in his house mm-hmm. and you'd watch him and take care of him, and help him and ha- help him enjoy life. And so Michaela went to school. And she, then she got a job with Ada County, you know, eventually. And, you know, I go back to school, you know, and, and I wasn't planning on it, but I just, you know, I felt, oh, I need to. So, mm. um, yeah. And then, uh, there's a professor called Nick Miller there. And I had always wanted to know one of the reasons I traveled, you know, I was excited to travel to Eastern Europe was because of Bosnia. Mm-hmm. I always remember like, where is this place I never heard of? And why all of a sudden is it all over the news, you know, as a 12, 13 year old kid, so just this memory of Bosnia in the news when you were younger just stuck and yeah, hmm. how impactful those those uh, images were of you know mothers uh, you know crying over the son's you know their son's grave or over some sort of uh, human rights violation you know they're just mm-hmm. you know what is this place where there's all this interesting culture I'm seeing but there's also this misery what is that about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, yeah, it stuck with me. And then I'd seen some of it in Bulgaria. So I, I'd seen sign a kind of lower down the, I guess it's the Wasmus Center, uh, Anne Frank Memorial. Mm-hmm. They say the spiral of injustice. Right. Yeah. And so uh, we were talking about that. I think the other night, mm-hmm. Shane, it's, it's not, not a straight ladder. No, it's not. Um, and it, it's, it's really, it goes down, right? It's not something that you, you go up to. It's, it's a very negative effect that goes down, but it starts with 
uh, discrimination in words, um, in imagery, um, in how you treat somebody. So if you isolate somebody uh, because they have darker skin or they're poor or dirtier, um, that's, that's the beginning of otherizing somebody. Um, you're not trying to see them as a person. You're seeing them as something less than you, perhaps, because your circumstances are poor themselves and you're trying to make yourself feel better about them by hurting somebody else. Well, that's the start of something that you descend into greater and greater violence. So you you're know. saying that you saw this pattern of the negative spiral of injustice in specific instances or in, in specific uh, cultures? Yeah, well, or was it that you were interested in learning why that happened? Because that's what I kind of felt like yeah. we kind of got to is that you you were so interested in why this happened and and to see those patterns. Yes. Well, you know, so I had been interested in Bosnia when I was a kid. And then I go to Bulgaria and I witness this kind of like ethnic violence firsthand um, and also, you know, racial violence. You know, it, it kind of the ends are similar. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um but so when I came back, those two kind of ideas is like I experienced this and I've always been curious about this. Bosnia is the next level in the de-evolution, you know, mm -hmm. into violence based upon those ideas that somebody is less than you mm -hmm. or a group of people are less than you. Um, and so I wanted to go and really get into it. And uh, I don't think I knew exactly what I was getting into, you know, and uh, yeah, it was a. When you say you're getting into, because um, you focused a lot on on the Holocaust, is that right? Or later that, on? Yeah. Okay, so so you went in with what was I guess the the plan of study when you went into your your masters? So that's what they that's what your uh, committee find out. Like you know, I was lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Nick Miller as the head of my committee, and he had testified in a war crimes tribunal uh, as an expert witness against a Bosnian Serb. Uh, you know. I, I forget if they found him guilty or not, but alleged war criminal. Okay. Um, and so, you know, he, he was an expert in Serbia, is an expert in, in Serbian history. And um, so anyway, he, he was overseeing my, uh, you know, uh, my education plan. Um, and he said, well, you have to do something that's new. That's what grad school is about. You have to do something fresh. And in an MA, it's getting you ready for uh, if you want to go into a Ph.D., and so he said, you have to do something that hasn't been done. And so I'm looking, you know, well, okay, like history is as the birth of ideology. It's like, it's been done. And so I'm looking through all these ideas and finally I land upon, well, uh, human rights abuses uh, or, or warfare through the, through the, I guess, bandage of a, a woman's body, you know. And so the, the woman's body becomes like a, a battlefield. And there's sex crimes um, and things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at the system and why this works. Um, why, why attack a woman? Well, it's, it, it's this patriarchal culture, right? Um, and so we took a big dive into looking at patriarchal culture, but also uh, the resultant trials afterwards, like how the, the international community, uh, you know, kind of, tried these criminals that had committed rape and violence. And so uh, come to find out that there hadn't been many trials that, that really tried to go after these war criminals and rape had never been, um, you know, defined as a crime against humanity or as a crime of genocide. Mm -hmm. And so I looked into that in a specific trial where it was labeled um, this guy, uh, Radovan, um, Karadzic, no, what was his name? Um, anyway, it's a long, long we story. You. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah um, Kunaritz, that's that's the case, the Kunaritz case. But this guy had committed systematic rape against the Bosnian women in in uh, Focha, this community I traveled to, and uh, basically he was f convicted at, uh, for rape as a crime against humanity, which was a first okay. in mm -hmm. international tribunals. And then at at that same time, Rwanda is going on. So you have uh, a case where uh, a war criminal who had never actually physically sexually assaulted a woman, a Tutsi woman, uh, he was he was convicted of uh, rape as a crime of genocide because he masterminded the whole thing. And uh, empowered his people to carry it out. Yeah. Even yeah. though he didn't do it himself, mm -hmm. he used it as a weapon. Gosh, that's so disturbing. Correct. Okay. Well, and believe all these are 
kind of underneath all this is those ideologies that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you have these these really deep patriarchies where, you know, women have their role and um, and they're seen as in many ways as less than a man and this is their place. So you already have an element where or or an atmosphere where violence towards women can happen. Um, and and the Serbians uh, and the Bosnians and all the war criminals that came out of body, they knew this. Right. And so in attacking a woman's body, you're actually attacking the man from that patriarchal culture. Um, mm. And, you know, that's a that's a it it was a new concept to me. So that's what I started to look into and this specific trial. And and I mean, it was a it. But you have to understand uh, you have to understand sexism throughout the world to really start a foundation for what I was going to write about. Mm. Um, and so it was a, it was a two and a half year process uh, great education but this feels like an odd kind of direction towards history in general that it starts with this this childhood emotion that you feel whenever you see an event and then it moves into your uh you know later adolescent life and seeing firsthand what you know a different culture thinks and how they feel and how it affects their behavior and then into specific cases but in all these cases i guess what comes to my mind is this um I guess the danger to be swallowed up by history, right? Europe and the Middle East, they are mired in historical battles that carry on today based on, um, you know, based on their history. And so like how they think and how they believe is, you know, they're products of their history. How do you not get swallowed up in that? And I guess adopt the same ideologies or uh, that you see that they are suffering from today. Well, in those places, you know, the problem was in, and in the Balkans, uh, where you have different communities that aren't defined by, uh, hard borders. Right. So, um, you have ethnic community, you have tribal communities and, and they have homelands and areas that matter to them across different borders that aren't like, you know, on a map considered theirs or whatever. They're not continuous. No, no. And so, what happened is you get like after World War One, right? They're trying to make the, the Paris, you know, peace talks, right? 1918, 1919. Um, they're trying to figure out, you know, what to do with their allies that, you know, fought against the Turks in the Middle East, right? The Saudi uh, Arabia, the birth of the Saudi, you know, empire. Um, what, what was it called? Or um, what's that movie? Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you have people that don't understand the history of that area and they're carving up these lands um, with real no thought to those um, communities, those mindsets and sort of how they see their story in these um, this land. Right. And like they might identify with this patch of ground, but you're not going to give it to them. They're going to give it to this other community that might also identify with this patch of ground. And then that's the birth of a perhaps a, a, a future uh, conflict and this definitely happened in the Balkans. Um, it's very complicated idea, but I I hope that makes some sense. I'm really intrigued by this idea of a different view that they had of how they saw their land and their home. It's an, you said that it wasn't based on borders, rather it was based on the actual land, like these yeah. locations that held their stories and their history. Yeah, I mean, it was I, based on Europe. The, the hard borders are based on, um, you know, that European mindset and how they saw the land. Maybe this is like a, an American mindset or lens that I see through is that, you know, I've always, we've always been raised by borders. Like I grew up in a certain state and a state is defined by the state lines or yeah. the country is defined by the borders to the north and the south or east or west. But to think of it differently, not based on the hard borders is I don't know why I found that kind of intriguing, but insightful also, also to how so, they think. so complicated. I mean, like, we, we have these thoughts. I, I find it interesting to look at international uh, current situations as an American because we just don't come from it from, like, the right perspective. But so I went to school in Israel, and my technically my minor is near Eastern Studies, which is funny because I came out of it knowing less about <sighs> the Middle East conflict than I think I did going in because yeah. <laughs> what I realized was that I came in at such a deficit of coming from, you know, this American perspective. I I was just starting to kind of see what it means to have thousands of years of these cultural uh, experiences where I'm coming, you know, I just, I, and, and then living with these really amazing 
Arab people and, and seeing their, this perspective that we actually don't really see in America. And, and I just came home more confused and realizing that's not where I'm going to have a benefit in like yeah. moving forward, but so grateful that I'm like, okay, what I learned was that I don't know. And that that was insanely important lesson to me. I think just in history in general, I think everyone should, I think every American needs to spend time out of the country and like in, in places like this to realize you can come home and you don't know what, what you don't know. I t yeah. Take it a step further because you use the word deficit and I don't think that you mean to, that you meant it in like a negative way, but I think that everybody can benefit from seeing another per, uh, perspective. Well, I mean, do you Regardless mean a deficit? Regardless of where you live, I mean, coming from, uh, I mean, it's hard to fault anybody because deficit says, oh my gosh, I didn't have any of these experiences, but I don't think that it's from our fault. It's just, this it's, is where we were born. It's just the reality. Up. Everyone yeah. comes from, and, and we'll move into this and in just even just Idaho history, because that's kind of what we're moving towards is why, how does this affect such as, you know, you have this incredible international experience, but you are actually moving it down to this like very focused America and then in, in Idaho history and how even learning that how important that is for understanding diversity and all that. But we've talked about this a little bit, but I think that there is this American pride, which is wonderful. At the same time, it makes us believe, a lot of us, that we have the correct understanding and grasp on reality and history. And the deficit, that is a deficit in that every single human has the deficit of only being able to see through their own lens. Yeah. I would say that regardless of where it starts, where you're standing, when you feel that it's a deficit yeah. because I think that just not acknowledging a different cultural perspective or a different point of view or dealing in an absolute term that says my perspective and my culture is the baseline. Mm -hmm. That is, that's the danger. Mm -hmm. And what I've kind of seen a little bit more clearly in my conversations with you, Mark, is that that happens everywhere. That's happening in all cultures and all parts of the world is this, you said it earlier, the otherizing, starting yes. to see another group as the other changes how you treat them. Definitely. I mean, and, uh, you know, I think that's what I saw as I progressed in my education um, and then definitely later working for the city I started to find, you know, as I learned about Idaho, but local history, some of the same themes, right? Um, for instance, the other rising that we're talking about when you had, you know, the Oregon Trail first running through here and, you know, it had been a trail all the way back to, you know, they were, they were Shoshone and Bannock you know, hunting tra trails and, and they would have messengers go up to different areas of Idaho, you know, what was going to be Idaho and uh, communicate with other tribes. And so there's all this network of trails, right? And so then you had Europeans, uh, you know, European Americans, Euro Americans come through um, as fur trappers, and the trails developed more. And there was, you know, yeah, there was violence, but um, come 1840 and the Oregon Trail, there were settlers coming through here now because they had heard about these trails. So they're coming through the Boise Valley, which was one offshoot of the Oregon Trail, right? And there's a great deal of trading going on. You know, a lot of times you find these excerpts from diaries where you know. We got fresh fish, fresh salmon from, you know, the the Shoshone. They don't say Shoshone, they just say Indians, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, later snakes, as they would call They combine all the tribes. But um, there was like a, a cautious optimism or a we need you, you need us. And so they would trade, your, you know, um, metal goods and things like that with for fish and, and food to survive. But then you get you get more and more um, people coming out, uh, Americans coming out West, right? Because they themselves are coming from desperate times. Mm -hmm. They don't have it, you know, not all of them have it amazingly. Very few of them have it going like swimmingly over in the East, right? Mm -hmm. In Eastern United States. They're coming there because they too are immigrants that just got in the country and are, are desperate to go get land and make a a life for themselves. Yeah, they're looking for opportunity. They're looking for opportunity. But for their opportunity, they come and they start to displace people, uh, you know, the tribes, many different tribes, right, that have, uh, you know, called these these lands home for centuries. Um, and so there is an otherizing that starts to begin. And then you hear the narratives in these journals change, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you get a, almost like a situation of a... a war of attrition starts between the, the 
settlers where, you know, if you see a, a you know, a, a native person in the area, you know, you shoot first and ask questions later. Right. And, and, uh, you know, this starts to develop on the other side too, because they're, they're dying from disease. Uh, they are having their hunting grounds decimated by, you know, that uh, domestic animals that come through with the wagon trains. And so uh, they start to commit acts of violence against uh, the white settlers coming through. And, and then the, it just goes, it just snowballs, right? Because that othering has been done. And then that goes back east, that mindset. And so people who haven't even run into the tribes are coming out there uh, out west and they're thinking that. You know, and so the dehumanizing can spread almost like a virus. Is sorry, is othering a term used very often? Well, yeah. So because I mean, it's an amazing term. Yeah, like, that I this think is awesome. should be used. I love that the the othering. It's it's very. Uh, I mean, it's so applicable for every, <laughs> everything. Well, <laughs> something that like I don't want to be too on the nose, but I mean, we can kind of see a correlation today with an influx of people from out of state coming into yes. Uh, to where we are today, there's this there's this tendency to make them the other. Oh, they came from elsewhere. They're in our home, and I'm going to treat them in a certain way. Uh, or, you know, on the flip side, those that, that are coming from outside of the, the state here, they feel like they're made to feel like the other, but they're dehumanized, and there's no empathy. And so I could see it's a hotbed for conflict. Yeah, and it has been. This is this is what we're talking about, and this history is all about the context. You know, mm-hmm. what what is it that you know? Yeah, you got a blanket, right? But what weaves that blanket together is these individual fibers, right? And that's what history is. It's the fiber that you know weaves us all together as Americans, right? And one of those stories, one of those fibers, the main kind of connective tissue, if you will, of American history is immigration and emigration within America, right? That's it's one of the migration. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's a human thing. It's a it's a it's a, just a, a natural thing that humans do. Um, they migrate, and uh, you know, uh, I think I told you, Natalie, about this. This or was it you, Shane? I can't remember, but it was uh, uh, Ronald Takaki is this great historian, and he studies immigration, and he said the the history of America is immigration, and the history of immigration is America. Right. And so it continues. Right. We moved out west. We hit the we hit the Pacific Ocean. So we jumped to islands. We went to the Spanish-American War, the war in the Philippines. You know, um, we continue to expand. Um, And you know what? People are starting to move around all throughout the United States as as communities flourish, irrigation spreads. And you have that American dream being kind of available to the masses. And so people who don't have that access to that dream somewhere else want to go and find it you know and so there are tough times in california right now you know and in america as a whole but they come to a place where they find hope and for many of them that's idaho yeah they've heard stories they've had friends that have come and had this awesome experience and they want a part of that too because it's better than where they, they are exactly but i can understand the side you know i've been here for 12 years michaela comes from my wife she was born Cottonwood, I believe, and then grew up in Craigmont for a while and then went to Coeur d'Alene. Um, you know, and and she has trouble with how Idaho is changing sometimes. And, you know, it's a scary feeling to see a place you love change drastically. So, I mean, I can't blame somebody that wants to come and get, you know, some of that good living. Mm-hmm. But I'm also fearful as well for how this place is changing, right? And so, I mean, that's where history is for me. I want to get out there, talk to these people. And say, listen, you appreciate that. You, you know, Pete, you're from Idaho and you've lived here all your life. You didn't know this. And here's this person that came from California. And I have many people from California want to know about that place they're coming. Mm-hmm. Because they, uh, I think history fosters a love of that place and helps it develop in a way where you preserve memory and culture and uh, an appreciation for the past that was there before you were. But this kind of come, comes back to something that we talked about, and you, you two may have talked about it too, but um, it feels like, sorry, let me set myself up a little bit better. Natalie, you had said people want to think in terms of right and wrong, black and white. It's easy to think like that. It's harder to think in, in tones of gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to be able to look back and say, yes, this is what happened. This is why it happened. And it's very clear cut because clarity gives us comfort. But 
what little I know about history is that clarity is any or history is anything but black and white. It is fully gray. It's all in tones of gray, different shades, but um, it's not clear cut. And understanding the his, the lessons of history requires nuance. It requires a lot more open mindedness. And what you told me that resonated is it requires you to listen. Yes. Listen and listening opens the door to empathy, you said, and then empathy tears down this other barrier. And then looking at yourself and how, how did you, you know, act like, you know, in arguments, for example, you know, I could have learned a lot more if I would have simply listened. Right. Mm -hmm. So I go back and I look at myself and, you know, assess, you know, but you're doing that with a, you can do that with a mass of people or a historic figure, you know, you're kind of applying that, you know, lens to them, you know, and, and yeah, it's, it's an imperfect, uh, imperfect system, right? You take as many uh, primary source materials or from that day and age, right? But they're still full of human, you know, bias uh, or personal bias. Like, you know, you have interviews or oral histories. So you don't just read one and say, oh, that, that's what happened here. You know, you read a whole bunch from that one community and then perhaps ones from communities that were seen to oppose that one community. And you try to develop some sort of consensus um, where, you know, the information gathered together tells a larger story. Right. And, uh, you know, for, for instance, in the river street area, you know, pay it brewings down there and all that. Mm -hmm. You know, they called that a ghetto. It's been called a ghetto when the black community lived there. But there were there were people from uh, Southern Europe, Basque people, Greek people, Italians. Right. Um, and they were all down in there, you know, and it was a very nice neighborhood. And if you read how people outside the community would talk about it, you know, labeling it a ghetto or something like that. Um, and the people inside it took great pride and it was not a, a a dirty place. It was just intentionally isolated, mm -hmm. you know? And so the terms that were applied to it, you know, misled people that didn't know that community. And I got that because you look at pictures, you look at reports. So you can look at outsiders reporting about the river street area in the papers or oral history from people that didn't live down there. And then you listen to the pride that were in, uh, you know, people who live down there, they would do interviews and you could tell how, much pride they had in their homes and how cleanly their yards were and the work that they did. And you realize that there are two different stories going on. And, and the one that's more right is really, you can tell from the, the people that lived in that community themselves. Mm -hmm. And by right, I mean accurate, right? Yeah. It was more um, accurate from within than from without. Without. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then there's a whole story, you know, where you see the intention of putting it in the South side of the tracks, right. And how it became that way. You say it, intention, intentionality from uh, like the government and zoning. Yeah, things like that. Like, okay, yeah, this community's we're gonna we're gonna we wanted the you know why we I mean Boiseans you know they wanted the trains to come through here right and so they they saw you know being linked to the rail systems as integral so um, they started to kind of promote this idea to the Union Pacific or the Oregon Short Line eventually came but uh, to bring um, trains right down, you know, Myrtle and Front Street area, right? So down on the other side of that, you know, that's where the community that was African-American worked, you know, great, many jobs, but on the railroads themselves, that's where they were kind of put. And there was de facto kind of segregation throughout the city and, and many other cities in the Pacific Northwest, right? Um, so you realize that that was going on right here in Boise. And so it, uh, these, these falsehoods, these stories that you read from in other oral histories or interviews people have done, you see that can, that continues throughout this time frame, right? Um, over like the, the forties, the fifties, the sixties. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those ideas spread and keep that community isolated. Right. While in fact, inside the community itself, there's something totally different going on, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it, it creates a really tight cohesion in this community where its own culture and its own development and uh, a unique just world develops uh, differently uh, from people that live just across the street. Are you saying that the pressure from the outside on these communities, maybe it's negative feelings or perceptions or prejudices, are you saying that they force them to kind of 
I guess, rely on each other and build their own community yeah. from within. And yes, um, exactly. Um, you know, and, and there were certain jobs that an African-American woman, for example, could get. And it tended to be for a specific time frame. you know, we're talking the 20s, 30s, 40s, it would be domestic, right? Um, and so there were understandings that this is the type of work that I could get. And, you know, for, for men, it, it tended to be the railroad in Idaho, right? For, for African-American men, it tended to be the, ra- the railroad. Um, so large quantities or populations of people lived in Pocatello, right? Um, and, and then some smaller, the second largest um, African-American community uh, was here in Boise, the River Street area, you know. And so, you know, there were, they were kind of like, that's, what, that's the type of job that I can do, these sets of, you know, professions. So that's my world, right? And then you had your church, right, the, the Baptist church here. Um, and you had the, the church life became very important to these different communities in Idaho, Um and it was like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to develop our own culture and it, it's going to be centered around the church and we're going to work our jobs and we're going to keep what we have clean and this is our world. Mm-hmm. Because in this other world that's just across the street, you know, I can't go there and there's plenty of stories like I won't get fed at this restaurant. Um, I'm expected to be quiet or I can't live in this neighborhood, not because there's legal segregation, but because nobody will... You know, and, and you realize through oral histories, like it, it's amazing when you compare these two different sides and what they're thinking, mm. right? Um, and I mean, so, but but to understand all that, you have to read a lot. Is I guess back to the original point, right? I can't imagine how much you've had to read in a history degree or in the oh. field of history in general. Yeah, I I well, I love this thought that right here in Boise we have we have this lesson of systematic racism, of cultural cohesiveness. Like we have this example that of, of something that happened right here that teaches us how the rest of the world works um, and, and that we can study our own history and, and get a better understanding of, of these kind of relationships. But one thing I, I've thought a lot of, I guess, in what, in what I studied, because I studied history and art and literature, and again, became just so overwhelmed because uh, like you say to get to this, the crux of things, you need to read so much. You need, but like I'm a mom of three. I, uh, I have two full-time jobs basically. And I'm reading a, a book right now. I guarantee it'll take me like a month to read this book. And I kept, I, it, I struggle because what I want, I want to understand. Um, I, when I lived in Israel, I was so fascinated by the diff- the Jewish section compared oh, yeah. to the Arab section. Like, they are next door, and the worlds could not be more different. I mean, it is it is unbelievable, and I could never have understood that until I walked through it. And and going through that, I realized I I I guess I would say what I learned that was the most valuable thing was I am never going to know everything. And the mm-hmm. most important thing I can learn is that I don't know. And like that the messages that are fed to me, uh, that I have to be so careful to believe any anyone's interpretation is accurate. And I feel like she, you and I are kind of both like that. And a lot of things is we just have to be so ready to change our perspective based on as we're hearing different lenses. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, in history, so... You, if you want to see a valuable work of history, whatever it is, like something you can trust, you're going to have footnotes. Mm-hmm. You're going to have references. You're going to have citations, whatever you want to call them. And then if you study those, you'll see, okay, uh, this historian is getting, you know, varied sources to try and understand as best they can this, you know, particular event or, you know, situation or era in history or whatever, you know. And uh, so, yeah, any any great work of history that you can trust is going to have lots of sources listed. It makes me think of the, I think that one of the things that you were hinting at, Natalie, is, you know, today we're busy. We don't have time to be historians. And if real, if better understanding requires so much time to dig into history and nuances and perspective and to gain empathy, we don't have a lot of time for that. And so what are we relying on or what do we find ourselves tempted to base our opinions on is 
quick, digestible, what we hear from social media or what we hear on the news. And we're not taking the time ourselves to question anything for one. And then, or uh, much less to dig in and do our own research. It's, it feels like it's so dangerous that our perspectives are dictated by other people that we're just trusting them to do our thinking for us. Well, and I think that's the the thing, like, we can't go out there and say, okay, so now you need to reprioritize and get way into history. I think it's more the lesson of that. We might not be able to do that. So we need to understand that that black and white doesn't exist. Um, I'm a hundred percent with that. I think that that's the lesson that I take is you have to, you have to espouse or accept the idea that there's so much that I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to approach questions or issues from the perspective of ignorance. There's probably things going on here that I don't understand. Why don't I approach it with curiosity and ask some questions before I jump to a position? Well, and you're going to have to I mean, the only way you can do that, like, you know, I can't just read all the primary source materials. I have to trust um, other scholars mm-hmm. and and read, you know, whether they're sociologists, psychologists or historians. And I have to trust that, you know, oh, they're bringing this information, they're citing it. And this is their best conclusion in that secondary source material. Right. And so, you know, I don't know how you get that in this day and age because there's so much um our respect for the written word has kind of almost backfired in some ways because you go online, like you were saying, you read something perhaps on a blog. You're like, okay, that's the story. That's my bit of information. That's my truth. Mm-hmm. And we can all be, we got, we can all be susceptible to that. Sure. Oh, and it's so hard to tell like what is, sco- what is scholarly and unbiased and what is an advertisement or something that's, you know, has an agenda it's not easy to recognize those types of articles. I love, there's an episode of South Park that touches on that, that <laughs> like most people, they just don't know. They don't know if they're reading an ad or if they're reading an article. Well, that's like when people were, <laughs> I remember people were quoting The Onion, like as actual fact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was yeah. like some article that went on and I was like, you, you guys, that's, that's satire. Yeah. But like they, they didn't, they didn't see that. But and also, it is truly America's finest news source. Oh, it is. It's fantastic. <laughs> Can we all give props to the yeah. yeah. Um, But like from for working in social media, I think I love that I've worked in social media for so long. It's been about 14 years now because I I, I love it. I mean, I monetize it. I, I see the good in it. But the toxicity is frightening. But also as, as someone who loves art and literature and history, we have dumbed down um, to the point where we want our truth to be able to be written in a quote on one Instagram square. Yeah. Or now, I mean, honestly, the trend that we're working on in social media right now, I I don't want to think it's nefarious, but it's as if we are trying to purposely take our attention span down to the to the tiniest degree. Yes. I'll so, put myself out there and say I absolutely believe that it's a but, coordinated effort to dumb us down yeah i mean and i work and the thing is is i was having this conversation with um a really big travel um photographer the other day and that just in the transferring from instagram to the algorithm accepting reels as being the number one thing that they'll show we're basically having to create something in a funny video where we're pointing at bubbles or something and if it's less than 10 seconds then you're going to be seen more and i keep thinking I can see it's the incentivizing difference. dumbing it down beyond the point of being valuable. Yeah, now it, if, it's if it's not being, if you can't tell your truth in a hashtag, it does not exist. And um, and you know we're we're um we grew up without social media or even the internet for us, and now we see that our children they don't know the difference. They don't know that, um, <laughs> that well I'm hoping they'll know it, but. They've only experienced, okay, TikTok told me this truth in one reel, and that's my truth. And that, that to me, is the most terrifying movement, I think, oh, in, yeah. in cleaning our history. If you can't boil it down to a meme and state your position in a meme, then uh, you're worthless to us. Yeah. And like, I love memes. Make your case for yeah. yourself or for your position or for what's important to you. If a meme can't do it then uh good luck well i was i was thinking about this when it was martin luther king day you know yeah. <laughs> trying to find something to do and write about it um and you know that's with martin luther king's own story you know 
um, there's a very packaged theme that people want you to understand. Like, okay, he went down south. You know, the civil rights movement. They they fought segregation, and uh, that can be summed up in a meme because it's something everybody still knows. But how do you do, or, or you know, already knows because they're taught in school. Mm-hmm. How do you like do something new and make people look at the man in a different light in a paragraph? Not even, you know, I don't think it's possible. So how do you teach anything to somebody or how does it get mass, you know, but is it better to do it? And, you know, even in its imperfect, uh, you know, form Mm -hmm. than to not do it. I don't know. Like that's, I guess what's coalescing in my mind is that we're being incentivized to shorten our attention span and shorten attention spans, limit our ability to understand nuance and hold empathy like uh, we talked a little bit. Of, um, I love your term, uh, the two terms, villains and lions, right? Short history kind of leads us to see people as villains or lions, right? They yes. were all good. They were these wonderful people or they were all bad. And in this day and age of cancel culture, man, if some negative aspect comes out about an individual, uh, all of a sudden now they're a villain. You can move from the lion category to the villain category with one you know, with one quote or something. And not even that. I have friends who have completely deleted their Twitter accounts because I've been victim of this as well, is that if you're found to have liked something five years ago that goes against something that now is considered, you know, uncouth, you're canceled. Like, that's brought out. I heard an amazing quote in a podcast that I was listening to on the way here, and I'm probably going to botch it, but it was that you, anything that's based in culture, any statement or art or product that's created um, uh, as a result of the current culture cannot be judged through the lens of today's culture. Mm-mm. Things ch- yeah. things today are so different than 10 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Just the comedy, the things that we would laugh at and make jokes about, structure, you know, professional comedic jokes, um, 10 years ago today, they're offensive, but you can't judge the people 10 years ago as being racist because that's not what the culture was at the time. You have to judge them based on their current culture and on their mindsets and behaviors at that time. That's pertinent to discussions of the founding of America. You know, the people who, you know, who wrote the, you know, the constitution drafted the constitution. I mean, you know, uh, fact of the matter, they were all landowning elite white men, you know, but it was the it was also it was also the foundation for what would kind of eventually lead to and you know goes back and forth to this day uh freedoms for all people, a chance for people to live up to the American ideal, right yeah. and so the seeds of that are in that document, yeah, but, but the like men who were- wrote that didn't necessarily live up to the creed that they were writing down. So it was all for a, a future, you know, country that was brand new in its uh, sort of, it was a, what do you call it? It was like a very much uh, a hypothetical, like, will this work? But I, like, Well, I like the word you said there was also, and the word that we like, and. They were also that. They were both. I think we want to simplify. We want to say they were, again, like the victim, the lion. Um None of us want that for ourselves. None of us want to say, none of us would say, I'm this thing. Not, we all expect to be seen as complex individuals, but we don't give that same offering, I think, especially in history. But when we can say they were also this or this and that, it, it's harder to like hold that all in our mind, but that's the only way we can see it, I guess, accurately. We talked a little bit, uh, Mark and Natalie, you, you and I know the same book series, but I love this character in uh, a book series that we read, the Ender series by Orson Scott Card. But mm-hmm. um, this character later in his life, there's a role throughout cultures of the speaker for the dead. And I don't know why that resonated with me so much, but what the speaker would do is that when someone would die, um, you know, the community would call out uh, across the galaxy for a speaker and the speaker would come and do a deep dive into that individual and their story and would spend months sometimes putting together, listening to oral histories, looking at documents to craft this picture. And then they would call a memorial service and they would sit down and they would tell this story. They would use this advanced, I mean, this vast history of this individual and they would spin it into a story that did not discriminate between successes and failures. They would tell about the wonderful things. They would tell about the horrible things that they did. But the result that this, that this book tells is that 
the people that would listen to the speaker, they would walk away with this impactful emotional experience, understanding better that individual. So, you know, they may have come at it thinking, oh, Joe was this awful guy who beat his wife and blah, 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 blah. But they would walk away thinking, oh my gosh, Joe went through these things. And yeah, he did beat, beat his wife and he did these amazing things. He cre- he cured cancer, blah, blah, blah. But they would have a better, they would better appreciate the person because they saw the contrast, the yeah. good and the bad, but they didn't sift it out. They didn't try to paint a picture of all good or all bad. They found value in the contrast. And often the bad things we do can make us, you know, want to do good later. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so really, you know, there are people who a lot of their life was seen uh, re- to redeem something they'd done wrong. I forget what the man's name was, but a lot of what we know about what life was like on a slave ship, for example, example comes from a captain of a slave ship. There's a great movie about it along, shoot, you know, back 10 plus years ago now, 2007 or so, called Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. And it's about this uh, captain, and he gets, you know, he he joins a church, the church, and he becomes, you know, a recluse, uh, I don't know, a monk or a pastor, I'm not sure. It's, uh, but a lot of the evidence about what life was like on these ships and um, how horrible it was and, you know, kind of like exposing the system behind the slave trade came from this man who was trying to redeem himself, right, through the awful power of grace, as, you know, they would put it. Um, and uh, so, you know, if you just look at half that man's story, you're like, this is a horrible, you know, rotten character. But if you see when he saw the light, right, I saw the light, and he starts to change, you know, and if you look at the end of that, his story, oh, this man's miraculous, Mm -hmm. you know, well, it's all one story, right? I mean, we were talking about Churchill, you know, Winston Churchill, he's a, he's a colonialist, right? He's, FDR has to talk to him, I'm like, hey, we, we can't have you fighting for free Europe and also be a colonizer, right, you know, um, but he was arguably the right man to stand up to authoritarian Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, very complicated. No easy answer there. And you shared information about Robert Kennedy, one of your, um, um, you know, one of the people that yeah. you uh, uh, admire. His early history is very different from his later history. And yes. I think that the, that, the, that the quick paragraph version of Robert Kennedy that we see is just his later history. But... I think that you shared stories about what he was like in the beginning of his political career, very different from what he was later, but it almost gave me more appreciation for who he was later because of where he had come from. Yeah, I mean, how he, he comes, has changed. He comes so from much. privilege, beyond privilege, like one of the richest families in America. And he goes and he, he's uh, going after communists with McCarthy, right? And so he's part of this whole witch hunt that, you know, blacklists, uh, you know, most famously directors in Hollywood and actors and things like that. But, uh, you know, he comes to become this kind of like, you know, uh, the last figurehead of the 60s, the civil rights movement. You know, Martin Luther King, you know, uh, is executed, you know, assassinated. Um, Malcolm X had been assassinated. And really, uh, many people saw him as the last hope. And then he's assassinated. Right. But he became that person over time. And what he did is he talked to civil rights leaders. He talked to James Baldwin and he got really mad at them. Cause he's like, that's not my America. You know, uh, you know, you're treating my brother poorly. You know, this is the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, it's not as bad as, as you think it is all these things. And then he went and he had conversations with James Baldwin and other civil rights leaders. And he slowly starts to change and he changes as he goes down to, you know, uh, poor communities in the Delta, or he goes and he works with, or marches with, uh, you know, Cesar Chavez and and the farm workers, you know, out in California and, and other places. And he starts to see a different America from their eyes. And he embraces, uh, he believes what he sees and he believes what they're telling him. And so he does, he's like, I have this platform. And he changes, but not because of him, because of the people he talked to. And then it's because of him. So like they impart their story on him and he sees it. And then he has that great, you know, to come for full circle to the beginning, empathy starts to swell in him and he, he cares. And so it brought out this great, you know, loving man that sadly was taken. 
I think it's an awesome story that we see repeated and we hope that it's repeated more and more that we allow people the room to change. And I don't know, there's just something about the study of history and in our discussions and Natalie, yours and my discussion that I just, I hope that that's one of the lessons that people take away is to increase their empathy, to quit, to maybe not hold so sacred their own position and to help, I don't know, just try to understand other people and where they come from. Can I finish with one thing? Just or I would love you to close this up. Um, so I was talking about River Street, and I think I'd be remiss in, in telling the whole story, the River Street neighborhood. Um, yeah, the, the people didn't understand from the outside what this, you know, community was, right? But inside you had this microcosm from all these different cultures, right? Um, and you had, you had the Southern Europeans, and you had, you know, the Basques, and you had African Americans, and... You know, they all lived together in peace, you know, relatively speaking, and they, and they started to appreciate each other. Um, and so it's like that's another side of the story, and that happened here in Boise, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it comes from contact with people that have different histories and stories f- from you. But then for in learning that and, and their culture, uh, tasting their food, sitting down with them, enjoying their holidays, you get uh, empathy and understanding, and you see their humanness. So, so really the cure uh, to otherizing people is to sit down with them, uh, have some food, uh, learn about their past. I mean, so history is, is so fundamental to our way of thinking um, that it has the power to make you love somebody or if, if applied wrong, it, you can hate somebody for it. Mm-hmm. But if done right with a, a whole consensus and a whole group of people uh, where you start to form other thoughts it can make you love people that are different from you uh, at least in my personal experience so i think that's an awesome closing thought and isn't that the you know the way we want america to be i mean that's the whole that's how i want idaho to be yeah and 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 as you said that this conversation we wanted you to come on and we want to talk a little bit beginning because we do want you to come back to talk about more specifically some idaho history but and we we wanted to but we we realized after talking to you that we needed to have a foundation of where you're coming from, what our thoughts are at, as how we want to move into Idaho history. Um, so we're going to move into that in future podcasts. Um, but we're uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you are so much fun to talk to. Oh, oh <laughs> man, I have like a list of 50 thoughts that we didn't even get to. Yeah, so we'll we'll talk more about that. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for coming on. And uh, let's talk more history. Like Oh, before soon. we sign off, one thank thing you. that we had talked about, you've got a magazine coming out. Give us a plug for what you've got coming up. Oh, oh yeah. well, gosh, we didn't even talk about your van. Oh, okay, oh we got, shoot. Okay, Next two minutes. Yeah. No. For now, first of all, where can people find you? Ida History and the magazine. Tell us a little bit. So idahistory.com, you know, mm-hmm. is our website. We're, uh, the magazine, my, um, my business partner, Jeff Wade, is heading that up. But we basically, really quickly, there used to be a magazine called Idaho Yesterdays that the, that the uh, State Historical Society would put out. Um, and it was good. It was really, it was academic history. It was well done. Um, we find that there is a shortcoming or there's something missing here in Idaho, which is a, you know, a, a really well done kind of, uh, you know, history that you can trust sort of magazine. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we want to go into all sorts of different topics uh, and we want to provide a platform for other historians, you know, to write, you know, from academic uh, essays to people who live out in like what we consider history, like up in the Boise Basin, mm-hmm. you know, how they see history every day, interact with it. People who do, you know, uh, you know, perhaps they make saddles out of leather, you know, and, and, and you know, we want to understand where that comes from, that process, that tradition. That's um, my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pendleton people, yeah. right? Um, so what's the magazine going to be called? Ida History Magazine. All right. Uh, pretty simple. And, uh, yep, and the van. It's a 1978 GMC Kingsley, and these things are incredible. It's seriously bitching. It is bitching. <laughs> um, and uh, it's all, it has, it has uh, shade carpeting, burnt orange color, dark, you know, it has swivel seats. This thing is a, a behemoth of greatness. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we're working, we're having a, a, I met with a friend at Coffee Supply yesterday. Um, uh, her name is Lily Black, and she is a Black Cat Sign Company, and she's working on this um idea to include our our like our mascot the wild man of idaho mm-hmm. kind of like bigfoot but a precursor yeah. and uh integrate him into our idaho history logo but all in a sort of 70s style 
But what are you doing with this van? What's the the? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I didn't mention the important bit. We're gonna <laughs> do tours of the Boise Valley. Is what we're working on right now. So we've talked to the Dry Creek Historical Society to open up on special occasions. You know, to give private tours to people who come on our tour. Um, Melissa and Ryan at Coffee Supply. They're gonna hook us up with coffee in the morning and some tokens for people that come along. And we'll start the day off right with coffee. Go to a historic buildings. I only want to go to historic locations with something there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's hard to speak to things that aren't there, although I try my best. And so, and they're going to be unique stories that you don't know about or, or places that you like, oh, down this road, there's actually this cool old farmhouse from 1881. I never knew about it. Yeah. Awesome. Wish you the best of luck and excited to have you back on the podcast. I feel like we could talk for hours. Yeah, we, we have, actually. <laughs> I know yeah. we have. Both of us, actually. Yeah. <laughs> All of us. Awesome. awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, and we'll see you very soon. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you. The Boise Bevel Podcast is sponsored by Volkswagen of Boise. Interested in buying a Volkswagen in the Treasure Valley? Head to www.volkswagenofboise.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram at the Boise Bubble. And for more information about our community, follow at Hello Meridian. See you next time.